<laughs> Welcome to the Fitness Oracle, where we have real conversations with real people, just like you, with real stories, just like yours. And this is one of their stories. I am your host, John Katsavos. My guest today is Brock Gibbs, the author of My Coworkers Think I'm a Pro. He is a high school teacher in physical education in Montreal, Quebec. He started participating in the sport of triathlon at 45, almost after almost quitting his first race due to a panic attack, he has worked through several injuries to have won his age group at several Ironman competitions throughout North America. He has also finished at, in the top 10 at the Ironman 70.3 World Championships on two occasions, which earned him the distinction of Ironman All-World Athlete. He is in his second year as a member of the elite squad of the number one amateur triathlon team in the world, Wadi Inc. He, and, of course, he is the author of my co-workers, Think I'm a Pro. I have his book. Brock, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks for asking me. Uh <laughs> So how's your training going and how's your abductor feeling? <laughs> That's better now. Um, so it's come a long way. Training has been, uh, actually the training has been going pretty well for me, frankly, even though there has been no racing for, well, at least six months. Um, but I, I, you know, I'm a teacher, so I had the summer off and I've been off from work since March 13th until this, this past week. So I decided best thing for me is to just just motor through keep going pretend that there are going to be races so usually in the summer everything ramps up training wise so I did that anyway um, logged mile after mile after mile on the bike and on the run the only thing that was different was I, I haven't swum since Thursday March 12th the pools closed they've since reopened but since I'm not going to be racing until the spring at best I've delayed getting back in the pool because you have to, it's a little strange at the pool right now from what I've heard, you know, in the locker rooms, everybody's, it's kind of too close for comfort right now. So I'm going to ease back on that. And but other than that, things have been going really well, no injuries, knock on wood and uh, strong as ever. That's great. Um, diving <laughs> into your book, uh, you learned a valuable <clears throat> lesson on your 11th birthday. <laughs> what was that lesson? That lesson was simply that uh, sometimes life isn't exactly fair. Um, as I say in the book, uh, on my 11th birthday, I, I, before my 11th birthday, since I'm in March is my birthday, so from Christmas time until my birthday, I had been just plugging my parents with exactly what I wanted for my birthday, giving them little clippings from magazines and hints all over the place. And what I wanted was... Uh, a beautiful bicycle. It was in the shape of a motorcycle. It just looked so cool. And I, and I had never had a new bike before and I really wanted it bad. And finally the, the day of my birthday came and uh, well, the long and the short of it is I, I didn't get the bike. I thought I got the bike. The bike was in my house, but it turns out it was for my brother and not myself. So it's been, it's been a sore spot for me from that point on. Of course, my brother doesn't remember it exactly that way, but uh, no, he got a bike out of it, right? So, <laughs> uh, um, 
again, going deeping into your book, into your past a little bit, you almost were abducted as a kid. Yeah, sort of. At least that's what I think happened. I mean, I don't know for sure. I, all I know is that, uh, again, I was young at eight or nine, seven, really young. And I was at the shopping center, local shopping mall with my mom. And uh, we kind of like, usually I hold her by the hand, but this time I wasn't for some reason. And I was looking at a bunch of Nerf footballs and I was just studying these balls like, like no tomorrow. I really wanted one. They were so perfect. Back then when Nerf was brand new, these little squishy footballs and nice bright colors, they were fantastic. And I really wanted one. I was looking at them. I thought my mom was at my side looking at them with me as interested as I was. Of course she wasn't. Anyway, she, so I looked up, I've started to ask her questions like, what, what kind of ball would you like? What color do you want, mom? And she, no one would answer. So I finally looked up and she wasn't there anymore. And so I panicked a little bit. I was young and uh, I couldn't find her anywhere. And then this lady came and saw that I was alone in the shopping mall, grabbed me by the arm and wouldn't let go. And she was dragging me everywhere, no matter how much I tried to get her to let go. And, and like, I was actually punching her arm and she still wouldn't let go. And finally, from way in the distance, it felt like a really long time. I can't, I don't know how long it was, but it felt like forever. When you're a little kid and you can't find your mom, that, that's a long time. And I saw my mom way in the distance and she just motored towards us, put her finger in the lady's face and, well, she used a couple of expletives and uh, she got me away from the woman. That's the, that, that was all I remember. I don't know what happened after that. It's all a blur. I don't know if we went in the car, if we shopped some more, I don't know. But that was super scary at that time. I was bawling my eyes out. What was going through your mind during that during that experience? Because, like you said, like it was that, that's a scary situation. Oh, absolutely. I, I did. I mean, like I said, I was young, so I just I was thinking. The first thing I thought was, okay, this lady thinks I'm lost, which I am. But and she's going to take me to some mystical lost child room at the back of the mall. And I thought I could probably handle that. But she wasn't taking me to the, to the you know, where the, the office section, the back section where the janitors come out. She was just sort of taking me towards the, the exit to the mall. And, and I thought, geez, like, I don't, I don't want to go with this lady. Like, I, I don't, if I go with her, I might never see my mom again. And I, I didn't know, you know, again, maybe she wasn't trying to abduct me. I, I don't know. All I know is some lady that I'd never seen before grabbed me hard by the, the, the wrist and wouldn't let go and she was dragging me like and i was protesting <laughs> but uh, yeah it was a rough one one of the one of the stories in your book um with uh kenny and kevin <laughs> now when i was reading this story like memories of my childhood started to peer pop in because something similar happened to two cousins of mine. Um, why don't I'll, I'll let you tell the story. And I, I'm just going to say that something sim similar happened to my cousins, the exact same situation, just they weren't going down a hill. They were actually, it was on, it was on level pavement. Okay. And my sister and my cousin got an earful from my aunt for this. So I'll, I'll, I'll let you fill in the, fill in the folks uh, about what happened with Ke Kenny and Kevin. Well, before I tell you about the story, the, that's the fantastic thing about the, the, the feedback I've been getting from the book in general is that uh, things like that, I tell that story, but when I was younger and people like you, who I've never met before, 
and grow up in a different city all over North America, some from other places in the world, say, yeah, that happened to me too. Something like that happened to me too. So that's very comforting that the book resonates with people who aren't necessarily um, triathletes or, or whatever. But the story itself was, you know, we were just a bunch of, bunch of guys, young, you know, early teens, 12, 11 years old, kind of young, farting around in our, on our bikes in the local town. And back then, everything, everything was a race, right? It didn't matter what you were doing. It always turned into a race, even though you never said, okay, we're going to race. It just, it just turned out that way. Someone, you'd have a little look over your shoulder and say, okay, it's on, baby. Let's go. When we got to the top of a hill. There was me and my friend PJ and the Marler brothers, Kenny and Kevin. PJ and I had our own bikes. Kenny and Kevin were, let's call it, sharing a bike. Kevin was riding. He's the older brother. And Kevin was sitting on the handlebars, feet dangling in a tuck position. Just a recipe for disaster. But, you, but again, when you're young, you don't, you don't think about it that way, right? You just think, well, yeah, of course, that's what they're going to do. <laughs> they only have one bike. So we used to take off down the hill. And it was a really twisty, great hill, Mountain View Street, it's called, in, in the town where I, where I am right now, actually. And, you know, you, it's got bends that are big enough that you can't see the other side of the bend. So it was kind of dangerous in the first place because you never knew whether there was a car coming or not. But we didn't care. They took off. There were two of them. It took a little while to get them going. But once they, they hit the down slope, they were gone because of the extra weight. And they just flew. And so PJ and I are going for second place as fast as we can. And lo and behold, eventually we hear this blood curdling scream come from down the road and uh, and we both figured oh well one of the marlers has got to be dead that's for sure maybe even both of them and uh anyway we got down to the bottom and it was just like a war zone it was chaos there was you know expected someone to come out saying it's a smell of victory like corpses everywhere there was kevin was screaming his head off bloody face gravel cuts everywhere kenny was like like 10 meters across the street on the other side in a mangled ball of flesh. And uh, Kevin was just losing his mind at Kenny for some reason. Anyway, the long and the short of it is Kenny was concussed, broke his leg, broke lots of things and was out, out of it. And Kevin, his bottom lip tore off and we eventually found it on the side of the road and looked like a little gummy worm. And eventually he did get it attached and uh, it looks okay actually now. <laughs> That's good. But we were up to things like that all the time, jumping off a train bridge, all kinds of stuff. We all did that stuff when you were young. Yeah, but that's just a normal childhood. Exactly. <laughs> that's how you learn stuff. You know, you learn your limits. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like uh, for, 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 for myself, like I remember like uh, my cousin and my sister were racing on my grandfather's street and they're like, okay, well, my cousin's like, oh, I can beat you even with my other cousin on, on the handlebars. And the same thing, his foot got caught in the spokes. They went over and my cousin that got his foot caught in the spokes broke his leg. Yeah, exact same thing. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was reading it, I'm like, oh my God, that happened. I know that story. <laughs> yeah. Um, your first marathon. So before you got to the race for Cabot Trail, yeah. Your brother actually got you to run in that race. Well, not that race. I, I did that race on my own uh, with a bunch of teacher friends, and oh, then okay. but that wasn't actually a marathon. That was a relay race that did the whole 
I cabot uh, the whole island of Cape Breton in, in Nova Scotia. But after that, my brother got me to do my first marathon, which, uh, which was cool. It was an eye-opener for me. I, everything I had done before that in terms of, I had been running for a while, 10K races, 5K races here and there. And then I did the Cabot Trail thing, which was, I did two legs of the relay. One was 18 kilometers. I think one was 11. So those were the two longest runs I had ever done. And my brother said, why don't we do, uh, why don't we do this marathon in Quebec City? He had been training for it. And he said, I think you can still sign up. So I did. And uh, I did pretty well. You know, I did. I, I took off easy and nice and slow with my brother. And I thought, I thought he was going to drop me eventually and just, and then I was going to feel guilty, you know, I'm, I'm holding him back and everything, which it was kind of awful. But we eventually, it, was, it felt really slow. There was a whole bunch of people in front of us, you know, um, and I just looked at him and said, we should, can we pick it up? You know, we'll pick it up and see what happens. And he just looked over and said, you know, 42 kilometers is a long way. Maybe, maybe we should go easy. But he was open to the idea. So we, we, we just picked up the pace for a bit. He went left. I went right around this crowd of runners and uh i never saw him again so i assumed uh you know he blew he took the opportunity to just take off on me and uh so i finished the race well i did the first 30 kilometers no problem and then i hit the wall what everybody talks about is when you hit the wall i didn't know what it was in fact the whole race i was thinking uh, where's this wall that everybody talks about that this is this is a piece of cake 30k bang hit the wall had to walk a bit and at, until then, that was the most tired I'd ever been in my life. But I finally finished, ended up qualifying for the Boston Marathon and ended up waiting a couple, couple hours or an hour and a half anyway for my brother to finish. So it turns out I was ahead of him. Um, he had a really bad day, though. You know, I'm not an hour and a half better than he is. He just had a really bad day. <laughs> Uh, you actually touched up on something uh, that I hear a lot of runners um, say you hit the wall. Um, first and foremost, what is the wall? Well, the wall is, I don't know if there's a physiological term for it. Um, and usually for most people, it happens in a marathon, which is 42.2 kilometers. It usually happens at 30 K. It's like, it's like there's a signpost there that says, this is where it happens. And it's basically, you're, you're, it's not just fatigue. Everybody has been tired and fatigued. When you go to university, you pull an all-nighter. That's tired. That's really tired even. But the wall is your body stops its capacity to keep doing what it's doing. You have run out of glycogen completely. There is no calories left in your body. And it's going to take a while for you to take on calories and have the body learn to use them and turn them into energy. So you physically almost literally can't move forward certainly not at the pace that you had previously been going so it's like it's like a complete shutdown your mind still wants to go your mind even though it's fatigued and tired says no we can do this but the body is just saying look you can try to move your legs that fast but we're not going that fast we can't it's like you know you can't you can't drive even a beautiful ferrari without putting any fuel in it right? That's basically what it is. It's a gorgeous Ferrari sitting at the 30K mark of a marathon with no gas. Yeah. And what did you do to get past the wall? I, I don't know if I ever did. Um, I walked. I walked a bit and 
And there was an aid station there. So I Gatorade and gels and bananas and whatever they had on offer. I figured I'll just load it all in. And I continued moving forward, but I was walking. So I guess in the time that I was walking for three, four or five minutes, my body, okay, more fuel was on board and was able to turn it into energy. So I would run a bit and then I'd have to walk again and run a bit and walk again. So for the last 10, 12 kilometers, it was a, a run, jog, walk, spit, puke sort of thing until the finish line. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> uh, like you said, like you ended up uh, qualifying for the Boston Marathon. Uh, how did you end? Uh, how, how was that first race in the Boston Marathon? Because for like runners, that's like the that's like the Stanley Cup final kind of thing. Yeah, for for an amateur runner especially, because for most of us, it's the first uh, marathon that you you can't just sign up for. I mean, getting in there's more. You need more than a credit card to qualify for the race. You actually have to reach a time standard. So and it's really, and it's a tough time standard. Um, it's different for each age group. It's not, you know, like the guys that win the race are doing it in just over two hours. So I, my standard was a lot higher than that or lower, I guess. Um, but yeah, it was, it's the kind of thing that you, you think about a lot and then you get there and I don't know if you've ever, well, you've, you've been to the professional sporting events where you have an image in your head and you, you really build it up and sometimes it matches that reality. And sometimes you get there and it's kind of like, Oh, it's nice. And this is kind of cool, but yeah, it's not, it's not what I thought it was. Uh, but when I got to Boston, it was what I thought it was and way, way, way more. I mean, I don't know what it's like now cause I haven't done it in years. Uh, but back then you'd, you'd, you go to the center of town where they had school buses lined up hundreds of them and you got on the school bus based on your qualifying time and they would drive you to the starting line in Hopkinton 42 kilometers away so it's not like you don't start and finish in the same place you start one place and then you run into Boston and then you get to this this high school in Hopkinton where you wait around and have bagels and stuff waiting for the start to happen and there's just so many people and you can't and there's bands playing and there's breakfast buffets and it's just really, really big. Then they make in this announcement, okay, start making your way to the start line. We're going to be starting in 20 minutes or whatever. And this mass horde of people goes to the start line and there's so many of us and we all have different paces because we've all qualified at different age groups. So they put you in corrals based on where they, you think or where they think you're going to finish based on your previous qualifying time. And I was lucky enough in that one to be in the first corral right after the professionals. And I'm looking around at that thing and thinking, Oh my God, these, I didn't, I still didn't feel like I was accomplished enough to be there. It was some kind of fluke. And I'm looking at the other people and that was pretty much confirmed to me because they all looked like they were just sinew and muscle and just vibrating ready to go and I was nervous thinking oh my god I got to take a dump you know I don't, I'm sure that's not what they were thinking and then I thought and I really had to pee that's a story I should have put in the book I really had to pee bad and I'm thinking well what am I gonna do I, I, I gotta go really bad I don't know where to do it because we were in a corral it's like being on the the subway during rush hour there's no room everybody it's crowded around you and I was thinking what am I gonna do and this lady right in front of me 
crouches down and takes a piss right on my foot. And I'm thinking, oh, so that's what you do. Okay, no problem then, you know. <laughs> that's all I have to do. I can do that. That's easy. <laughs> and the race went actually quite well. I finished under three hours. And I don't know what my placing was. But that's, that's the sort of engulf. The, if you can go below par, below 72, you're a really good golfer. And for marathon running, it's three hours. If you can go below three hours, you're, you're fast. So what was the trigger for you to transition from it? Sorry, let me rephrase that. What was the trigger for you to transition to the triathlon world? That's a funny one. Uh, While I was doing all these running races and stuff, I had, uh, I had gotten into uh, cycling. Like I was not into it. I was interested in it. I came across a book. I was actually when I was on my way to, um, of the Boston Marathon for my second, second or third time. Um, and I had, you know, I've driven from Montreal to Boston many times and it's a, it's a five and a half hour long kind of boring ride. So this time I figured, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, I'm going to get a book on tape. Actually it was a book on CD and I'll listen to that in the car. It'll pass the time. I won't have to listen to NPR and, and the same, same music CD, which was a U2 CD, Unforgettable Fire. I know every song on that track. Um, and so I buy, I borrowed this uh, book on tape from the West Mount public library and, uh, popped it into the, into my radio. It was supposed to be Bill Bryson's a walk in the woods, which they've made a movie out of. And it's really fantastic. And I had read other Bill Bryson books before. So I was expecting this wonderful, calm voice read. And it turned out to be Lance Armstrong's book. It's not about the bike someone put the wrong disc in the, in the case. So I was kind of, I was kind of, you know, a little pissed off at first. And then, and the more I heard, listened to the tape, uh, the, the CD, I was really enjoying it. Not so much because it was Lance Armstrong and the book is generally about a cancer survivor, you know, getting through that and winning the tour de France. That part was interesting, but the most interesting part to me was when he would talk about cycling and training on the bike and, and racing bikes professionally and everything about that life sounded so great. So I figured I'd, I'd like to do that. I'd like to, you know, race my bike somewhere much like I do with running, but I was too dumb, too stupid to, I just didn't think there were any races like that for, for non-professional cyclists. Um, there are, and there were, I just, I just didn't know. I should have known because, you know, people play old timer hockey and Legion softball and stuff all the time in their forties and fifties, but I didn't know. So I thought about, you know, thought the only bike race that I think you're allowed to do is the middle part of a triathlon. So that's when I said, well, I already run. I love to ride my bike. I guess I'm gonna have to do a triathlon. If I want to race my bike, I'll have to do a triathlon. So that's what I did. I just, I started riding a, riding a bike a lot training on the bike a lot and ended up uh, signing up for my first triathlon, which didn't go so well, by the way. (laughs) Speaking of which, your first try-a-try, you had a very interesting swim. Yeah, yeah, again. Talk us through that. The bike and the run for that race went great because I know how to ride a bike and I was a pretty good runner. But the swim didn't go so well. Um, And to this day, I really... I don't personally know what happened. 
Um, but I've, I've found out from, you know, being in a lot of uh, triathlon groups and I'm on a triathlon team and you talk to hundreds of triathlons, almost everybody has gone through what I went through in that first race. Um, I know how to swim. I grew up swimming. Oh, we all did. Anybody who grew up in a small town near a river like I do, we swam every day in the summer. We had a pool in my backyard when I was a kid. I know how to swim. So I figured that's all I need to know how to do. Um, that and the fact that I had bought a wetsuit in my mind made me like an Olympic swimmer. That's all I needed. I didn't train for it. I didn't do one swimming session before the race. All I had done was biking and running for a year, not one swim session. But again, I said, well, swimming, that's the easiest one. You just, you know, doggy paddle through the water and you'll be fine. So I got to the race, um, racked up. Everything was a mystery to me. Like even racking your bike was all brand new. But I put on the wetsuit waist high because I looked around. That's what everybody else seemed to be doing. And I walked down to the beach, put my feet in the water. It was still going great. Put my arms in the wetsuit, had my girlfriend zip it up. And as soon as it was zipped up to the top, I felt this, oh, that's tight. <laughs> maybe maybe I should have tried it on completely when I bought it, not just put it up to my waist and said, okay, I'll take it. Um, <clears throat> but I figured, okay, it's just tight. It's something you have to get used to. You know, like you have to get used to a new pair of skates or a new pair of skis, everything. And I put the goggles on, started walking out into the water and I was like, oh boy, this is it's this really strange sensation. In fact, I couldn't breathe well and my breathing was labored yet like fast it was i was hyperventilating and i was starting to actually panic and that's not something that i normally do i get nervous we all get nervous but i was actually starting to feel literal panic like something that you can't control so i said well you, the race is going to start soon get in the water people were doing a warm-up so i dove in head first thinking once i get in the water i'll be fine and so i dove in and I wasn't fine. I uh, tried to swim out to the first buoy just to, to see if, if, if this feeling would go away. And it did not. It just got so much worse. I never felt like that my whole life. I was sweating. I was terrified that I was going to drown. And I couldn't breathe. And that made me panic even more. And I just, so I turned around, got out of the water as quickly as I could. Uh, a girlfriend asked me, so how'd it go? <laughs> it's like, I... I didn't want to tell her, look, we're getting in the car and we're going home because I can't do this. I just can't do it. But sort of walked around and mustered the courage to start the race and didn't get better. I did the whole swim in a complete state of utter panic, utter anxiety. It was just torture. I was, I thought I was going to, there's no way I was going to make it out and ended up doing backstroke and doggy paddle and breaststroke and just sort of floated and hoped the current brought me back in. I held on to a kayak, which you're allowed to do. Um, in fact, I remember telling the, the guy that was paddling the kayak, you mind if I hold on? He said, yeah, that's what I'm here for. I just can't take you forward at all in the race. And I thought, you, you, you prick. Like, that's all I want you to do is like, bring me forward. Like, what are you here for then, dude? Like, <laughs> and I was thinking also to myself, if he says I can't hold on to this kayak, I'm ripping him out of it and getting in myself and let him panic. So I ended up finishing that. And as soon as I got out of the water, I think that's why I became a good, at the end of the race, I ended up finishing pretty high because I was so happy to be out of the water. I got on that bike. I didn't even get tired. 
I went as fast as I could. Then I did the run, no pain, no fatigue at all. Cause it was just an emancipation from the water. It was wonderful. So what was that driving force for you to like during that panic attack, what was that driving force for you to keep going forward? The only, and this is strange coming from me because I don't, I don't get scared of things like that. Um, normally. And it's, it's strange because the only thing that did get me through the swim, I didn't get over the panic. I didn't overcome anything. I'm not, I'm not going to say that, uh, you know, it was, it was an experience and I got over it and I'm better because of it. That's not what happened. The only reason I was able to finish that swim was because I knew that that's where freedom lay was on shore and I can die out in the water or I can live if I make it to shore. So it was, it was survival. Basically I could stay out here. It's like a lot of things, you know, it's, I take my students out on a cross country ski route in the middle of the winter and they don't like it. And I say, well, like, I'm not going to carry it back. So we either keep going and you get back to school or you die here on a golf course in the winter. So it was like that. It was, it was basically a survival thing. That's cool. That's very, very cool. Um, Qualifying for Vegas. Yeah. You actually conned your brother into doing that race. <laughs> yeah. There was a couple races. The Between the that first race where I panicked, the second race is the race I conned my brother into. And it was an Olympic distance race. So it was a little bit further than the longer than the first race. And I figured I, I, I was still afraid of the swim. I had done some swim training at home, <laughs> which was a little weird because... It consisted of me just basically going in my pool and, and like backyard above ground pool and swimming against a little jet that comes out of the side. So it wasn't much of a training technique at all where I put my feet over the edge and tried to swim and ended up cutting the top of my feet off. But that was all the swim training I had. But I figured, okay, that's enough. And I wore my wetsuit every day that summer between the two races so that I could get used to the tightness of it. But I still needed one more little, you know, something that would get me to the race and get me over my fear a little bit. And I figured, okay, well, why don't I get my brother to do the race with me? He can ride a bike. He can run really well. And he doesn't swim as well as I do, which means he swims really bad. So at the end of the day, it's nasty. And it's, it's, I, feel, I felt guilty about it at the time. And I feel guilty about it now. But I wanted the company in the race, which was great. But I also knew that if he comes in the race with me, I won't finish last. <laughs> I mean, the worst I could do is second last because I know I'm going to beat him. You know, I beat him in a running race before and I know his swimming isn't as good as mine and mine is horrible. So at least I'll beat one person. So I brought him along for that reason. Again, like I said, that's, that's pretty awful of me, but we ended up having a good time um, at the race. I did again, I did better that time than I did the first time. I made it through the swim and this time <clears throat> it was an out and back swim. I made it to the halfway point in the same state of absolute utter terror and panic as the first race. And I got around, I turned around at the boy and, and I was started to go on my back again to do backstroke. I flipped over and said, I'm going to give this one more try on my belly. And then if it doesn't work, I'm going to quit the sport. And I looked at, around me and I noticed that there were a few other people on their backs doing backstroke and doing breaststroke and doggy paddle. That's the first time I noticed that. I was like, oh, okay, so I'm not the only one that this happens to. 
and a calm came over my body and I was just able to swim normally freestyle the way you're supposed to. And it actually felt good. I enjoy, I was enjoying swimming, which blew my mind away. I couldn't, I couldn't imagine that that would ever happen. And again, because of that feeling, I got to the bike, took off and didn't get tired until the end of the race again. And ever since then, I still have, even in my, the last race I did, which would have been in France last summer, <clears throat> in the, you know, right in Nice, in the Mediterranean, I got in the water. There was no wetsuit for this race because um, it was too warm. If it's too warm, you're not allowed to wear a wetsuit. And I got in the water and I started to swim and I could feel the panic coming back. And this was the world championships. And what are we doing? Like you're at the world championships. Why are you panicking? And I got over it. Every race I, I, I can feel it sort of inching up, inching up that little panic attack. But ever since that second race, I've been able to quell it and just say, okay, back off. Just, just swim, shut up and swim and I can do it. So, um, that's interesting because of, uh, that actually falls true with a lot of people that are going in, into depression or that have been through depression or have, uh, had like uh, really, really tough times, um, in their lives, in their past, they, they start myself included. Like I've been suicidal twice and, the one way that I actually, I, I, you, you, you never really get over it, but you, you start to see the signs and you're like, wait a second. No, 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 no. You're not allowed to come here anymore. Kind yeah. Of thing. And yeah. it's a good, it's a good feeling. It's a horrible feeling to have it, you know, well up in you again, but it's such a, a commanding feeling to be able to say, look, like you, you're not going to control me right now. I can, I back off come back some other day, but not today. Today, we can't, I can't afford you to be here today. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So when you did, you qualified for Vegas, I think it was the next, after the, Olymp the Olympic trial? Yeah, the Olympic distance race. I did, uh, I did my first half Ironman in Syracuse, New York. Walk us through the, the, the Syracuse because that was an interesting, uh, an interesting read. <laughs> well, the, I did the Syracuse race uh, that year and then I think three or four other times. That year was fine, but a couple of years later, I did uh, – actually, was the year, the, year, the year later? Anyway, either the year after or the year or two years after, I did the Syracuse race again, um, but I was injured. Um, that – the Syracuse race was in June, usually around June 24th-ish. And in March of that year, during the March break from school, I slipped on ice going just for a routine run and totally tore my adductor muscle, which I, you know, I thought was my hamstring at first. Um, and for the first time in my life, I wasn't able to just run through an injury or play through an injury. I'd had them before, but, but nothing that like, it wasn't because it hurt. It did hurt, but all athletes can deal with it hurts. But this, my, again, my body, my leg wouldn't straighten. It wouldn't let me run. And I kept trying week after week. I would try to do a run on it. I was able to bike. I was able to swim. Everything was fine. So I was in good, good enough physical shape. And week after week, I waited. And I finally went to physio, which I never believed in in the first place. Um, and it didn't help me. It helps a lot of people and it's great, but it didn't help me at all because I don't, I think it was the physiotherapy clinic that I went to. I don't think they were that good because 
on my last session, the, the therapist hooked up the electrodes to the opposite leg in the completely wrong area of the leg that was hurt on the other side. So I figured, okay, well, this isn't going to help. But I went to the race anyway, um, hoping for the best. And I, normally I don't believe in things like omens and stuff like that. But the, on this day, I started to believe in omens because when I arrived in Syracuse, I had um, reserved a hotel room weeks before. Um, and usually I travel with my girlfriend and my son come with me to the races, but this time they didn't come. So because they weren't coming, I decided, well, I'm going to save a little bit of money and I won't go for the sort of nicer, you know, Hilton Garden Inn that we usually go to. And I, I rented a room at the, the Ramada Inn in Syracuse. And when I drove up and I had an address, this was before I had a phone that had Google Maps and all that stuff. And uh, I had an address from Hotwire, you know, and, uh, and I'm looking, I arrived at what should be the address and the address was written on this, this pretty dilapidated building. And there was no Ramada in sign anywhere or anything like that. So, so I drove around and around and around thinking there's gotta be somewhere else. And I said, okay, well, I guess that's it. I guess they're renovating. And I drove my car under the awning out front of the lobby, which was missing a pillar. So it was all hanging off and it looked like a hurricane had just gone through. Walked inside and it was just a total disaster. First of all, the, the, there was a sign behind the, the desk and it was scrawled in Sharpie said a Hojo. So it was no longer a Ramada and it was a Howard Johnson. The carpet smelt like cat piss. There was stains. It was just horrible. Finally got my room key and directions to the room. And turns out there was a, there was a, a prostitute, I guess is what we'll say, already in my room, just like laying on the bed that I was going to be in. And I'm thinking, okay, well, this is not comfortable for me. So I kind of said, and she was asleep with a cigarette in her hand in a room that says no smoking everywhere. And uh, so I started to think, oh, Maybe I, I shouldn't have come to this race at all. Went back to the desk. He got rid of the prostitute. I don't know how. The door on the, the hotel room didn't close. It's not that it didn't lock. It didn't actually close. The door was bigger than the frame. There were cigarette butts in the, in the toilet. The bed sheets were awful. There was a leg missing from the bed. It was just, just a nightmare. And I thought, okay, maybe, maybe I shouldn't have come to this race at all. Anyway, the next morning that I went, they started to do the race, did the swim faster than I've ever swum before, got on the bike, same thing. It was like, it's like I was in the Tour de France. It was fantastic. There was zero pain from my, what I thought was my hamstring. And then I, so I got my bike into transition, racked it and headed out on the run. And I said, okay, well, let's, let's see if this works. And at first, when you're running out of transition, your, bike, your body's still used to being on a bike, so it's kind of quirky and stiff, and you're never comfortable right away anyway. So as I'm putting on my race belt and my race and my running hat and my glasses, I'm sort of jogging out of transition, and it didn't hurt. My leg didn't hurt at all. And then, so I think, oh, it's wonderful. It's over. The injury. I've had this injury forever. It's finally over. Let's go. And I started to run at my normal pace, and it took me like, I don't know, 80 meters to realize, okay, there it is. There's the pain. My leg isn't working anymore. This isn't going to happen. The day's over. But I was too stubborn, so I, I walked my way to the end. It was a, an out and back, 
and then out and back again. So I did the first out and back, got to the finishing area, and I was, I was going to abandon the race because, you know, you do two loops. The first loop, you have a choice of going back and doing your second loop or going down the finishing chute. So I went down the finishing chute just to, so that I could take off my timing chip and give it to somebody and say, that's it, my race is over, I'm abandoning, which is what I did. And that's what you're supposed to do. It's in the rule book. If you're going to abandon a race, all you do is take your timing chip, give it to a marshal, tell them you're done. They'll ask you a few medical questions and you're on your way. So that's what I was trying to do. But it was the finishing shoot and the announcer saying, now in third place from Quebec, Canada, Brock Gibbs. And I'm like, oh, no, no, I'm trying. I'm waving my hands, putting the old hand across the throat. No, I didn't finish. I'm done. I'm injured, limping even more than I needed to. And he wasn't listening to me. And I give my timing chip to a lady, a marshal. There's always a crowd of people that are handing you water bottles and medals and all kinds of things. And it's all congratulations. You did so well. And I'm trying to tell no, I'm, I'm not doing well. I'm injured. My race is over. I only did one lap, but they weren't listening. They just, they wouldn't listen to me. It's like, like, dude, I didn't finish the race. And now you're making, this is awful. So finally the lady's putting a medal. She's trying to put the medal over my neck. And I grabbed her arms and said, look, I didn't finish. I won't be finishing. I'm injured. And she got mad at me. Like, why didn't you tell me that before? And she actually said, you're making me look stupid. And I'm thinking, I was thinking, I didn't say it, but I was thinking to myself, well, you look stupid anyway, but like, I didn't finish. I'm trying to tell you that. And then to make everything worse, I looked on the, that day, the weather got bad in the afternoon. So they took everybody off the course, those who hadn't finished yet, because it was so bad with lightning. And they all got a free entry into another race because they DNF did not finish. I looked at the result. I got a disqualification for cheating. <laughs> I was like, I Whatever. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it was awful. <laughs> wow. Uh, but switching back to Vegas, uh, you actually upgraded your wheels when you got there and yeah. you took your bike out on a really windy day for a practice ride. Yeah, it was terrible. <laughs> it was a mistake. Because... <laughs> Yeah, I got, I mean, I had, I had bought a brand new TT bike, a triathlon bike, spent all the money I had on it, but it came with regular, you know, wheels that you, you get stock on any bike with a little, you know, 20 millimeter rim. And I got to the race. I got to the race site in Las Vegas for the, for the world championships again. And, uh, there was a tent next to, like I had, I didn't know how to, I'm not smart. I still don't know how to tune up my bike and I've been doing this forever. So I brought my bike to Vegas from Montreal. So you pack it in a, in a bike case, which I rented. And the bike shop out here in Montreal, they packed it up for me because I didn't know how to take it apart. And there was a place at the race venue, the exposition center, where there was a bike shop and they were going to put it back together for me for a fee. Right next to that, though, was this race wheels that you could rent. And they were beautiful. They were like, just like the ones that all the pros use with the big, thick 70 millimeter rim on it, carbon fiber. Wow. Just beautiful. And I asked, asked the guy, how much is that? And he said, it's a few hundred dollars, but I figured, you know what? I'm in Vegas. At least I can look cool. Right. So I rented a set of those wheels and I brought them with the bike to the, uh, the bike shop tent. They fixed, they set my bike up. 
not as quickly as I had expected, but it was ready the next day. And I brought it back to the hotel and figured, oh, I'm going to go for a, a spin on my new wheel, see how cool this is. And it was quite windy that day. Um, but, you know, I, whatever, I've ridden in the wind before, but I had never ridden in the wind before with wheels that have a 70 millimeter profile to them. So as soon as that hit the wind, it was like being in the America's Cup sailing race. My bike just kept shifting over the road and I wiped out like within 70 meters. And it's like, oh my God, <laughs> this is brutal. Got up, tried it again, clipped into my pedals, <laughs> got blown over, almost got hit by a Hyundai. And I figured, okay, well, that's that. We're done. I did a 40-minute training ride that lasted about 400 meters. So it was the shortest 40-minute shortest ride I've ever done in my life. It was awful. Uh, you also had a very interesting swim for the practice swim. Oh, yeah. In the man-made See, lake. Yeah, in the man-made lake. It was, a, it was in a, like a resort just outside of Vegas. I think it was near Henderson, um, out that way. And... Uh, a man-made lake again it was because it was a man-made lake and it's las vegas in september still pretty hot so it was too warm to wear a wetsuit and i had been training um with a pull boy for those of you know swimmers out there a pull boy is a, is a foam floaty thing that you put in between your legs to keep your bum up in the water it's a great training tool and i had been using that for months uh, in fact Every swim I did, every stroke I did in training was with my pull boy. And that, like I said, it keeps your hips up in the water, making you can concentrate on your, your upper body movement, your glide, because you don't kick much in a triathlon. You save your legs for, for the run and the bike. So they just kind of flutter along, and every now and again, they give a bit of a kick. And, and when you use a pull boy, you don't kick. So I got to the, the practice swim the day before the event, and I didn't have a pole boy and a wetsuit does the same thing as a pole boy. It keeps you on top of the water. It's very buoyant. It was one of the strange things on that first race. I couldn't figure out how to, how not to float. <laughs> but anyway, this time I was, I was used to being able to float without much effort. And I got in the water to do my practice swim and my hips just sunk. It was like I was swimming vertically and it takes way more energy to swim uh, using your legs to keep your bum up so now i had to use my legs which i wasn't used to i was sinking i was dead tired i again i couldn't i was i expected to do i was going to do the whole course 1.9 kilometers in practice couldn't do it did about 300 300 meters packed it in and again said okay well looks like i'm going to need a miracle tomorrow to be able to do the swim again so that made me panic and I spent that whole night with, I couldn't, I, I thought I had asthma, which I don't, but it was just like asthma. I couldn't breathe all night. I drove around, I went to drugstores trying to find one of those, like an asthma pump over the counter, which don't exist, at least not where I went. And I, I was going to cheat. If I had to take a drug that would make me breathe, I'd have done it because I couldn't. I couldn't catch my breath at all, ever. I stayed up all night because of it. I figured, okay, well, I might as well just stay up and watch TV all night because I'm not going to be doing well in the race anyway. So fatigue, what's fatigue? Ended up being okay, I guess. I think the fatigue is what made me do okay in the race because I was so tired the next day. I had like an epiphany and, uh, you know, my lungs just relaxed and opened up because they were so tired and I was able to do the race. No problem. You actually felt like quitting from what I remember reading. Yeah. 
What kept yeah. you? What kept you? What kept you going forward during the race, especially during the swim? Uh, well, when that swim, on that day, uh, it was a bit different because before the race, you have quite a bit of time to check your bike into twelve. Your bike's already in transition; it has to be in the night before. But you're allowed to go in, pump up your tires, make sure the gears are working. Your all your running stuff, all that stuff is set and ready to go. And I still kind of couldn't breathe when I was doing that. It was dark. It's really early in the morning. And on this day, it was pouring rain. Vegas, go figure, right? It hasn't rained there in like six years. And I go there on, on a downpour, which kind of pissed my girlfriend off a bit. Because I told her, come to Vegas with me. And it's, you know, the weather is 100% predictable. It never rains. We were there four days, rained all four days. Anyway, so I'm in transition. I'm putting my stuff together and it wasn't working. So... I decided, okay, I'm going to, I still had like two hours before my start time. So I walked off all by myself, found a couple of pine trees overlooking where the swim was going to be all by myself, nowhere near anybody. And, uh, and I just sat there kind of despondent at first. That's when I was thinking, well, you know, you, you, you keep doing this. You keep, something keeps coming up that makes you anxious and makes you panic and makes you feel crappy about this sport you know maybe 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 it's not for me maybe i should you know go buy a badminton racket or something and take up golf or something else and i sat there and i just looked at the water and then i thought about absolutely nothing i didn't try to i've never meditated before in my life i just sat there and stared at nothing and did nothing literally nothing other than the physiological things that were going on inside my body I did nothing consciously, just sat there for a little while. And then all of a sudden, I got up, took a piss, did a number two as well under the tree. And my lungs were wide open. Liter after liter of oxygen were just flowing into my lungs without any effort at all. Everything felt perfect. I was at complete peace. And from that moment on, triathlon hasn't been a problem. I get tired. I get nervous. But it was like, I, don't, I still don't know what happened. Something came over me. Just, just a moment of peace and everything cleared up. And it was fantastic. I've never felt that since, but I've never needed to feel it since at a triathlon. So you've never practiced this outside of that situation? No. And I didn't practice it then. It just happened. I've tried. I've tried to get myself, you know, like, to, because I've, I've never read how to meditate or anything like that. So I, I try to sit and just sort of concentrate on nothing and something always comes in my head. <laughs> um, that time I was lucky. I, and I just think about it this way. It, 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 it is what I needed. So therefore that's what happened. It's kind of like in every race, when you get super, super tired, when you hit the wall, like you were asking before, I think it's, for each of those times that it happens, it needed to happen for you to move on and grow from it. Because otherwise, when, you just, when you're just getting tired and where a lot of people will quit, it's the, the metaphor is like when the road gets a hole in it, the highway gets a hole in it. In Quebec, they tend to just patch the hole. What happened to me in Vegas was they dug up the whole street and repaired it from scratch. And my mind, my whole body, my whole spirit whatever just sort of reset and said okay 
in order for you to move on with this, this is what has to happen. Same thing in a race. You need to hit the wall. You need to hit rock bottom so that you can build from nothing. And that way you can build it properly. I love that. Uh, I really, really love that. Um, you went through a lot, especially like you start off your book, my coworkers think I'm a pro with your race in Lake Placid and you ended off with Lake Placid. Well, kind of, sort of towards yeah. the, the last couple of chapters about your, your, uh, that, that race. Why was this race so special for you? And well, did you know what you, what you, what you were getting yourself into? No. <laughs> the second question, no, I didn't. I thought I did. Um, it's special because it was the first full Ironman that I ever did. Um, and I went into it completely ignorant. Again, I had done lots of half Ironman races. I had been to, the, I'd been to Vegas at the World Championship, finished seventh. So I thought, okay, I was, I'm pretty good at this. You know, without being cocky, I can go up to the next level. There's only one level left. And Lake Placid, luckily, is near home for me. Like it's only an hour and a half away. And growing up, there were two Ironman events or triathlon events that ever came on TV back in the day of the ABC Wide World of Sports. There was Kona, Hawaii, and it was Lake Placid. So Lake Placid was this big deal race for me. So I had tried to sign up for it. It fills up right away. Uh, you know, they, they, they open up registration and it's full in like 30 minutes. So it's like, okay, I, I tried and I tried for years. And then finally, boom, I got in. And I, I didn't know how to train for it. And just for listeners out there training for a full Ironman, it's twice the distance of a half Ironman, obviously, but it's not twice the training. It's like at least four to five times the amount of training and the training has to be so much smarter and different and you got to fit it in in tiny pockets in your day because there's too much of it that needs to happen. Well, I didn't do any of that. I just said, okay, well, it's twice the length of a half Ironman. I'll do more or less twice the amount of training. Same thing with like how much food to bring on the bike. Well, you know, I'll take double what I take for a half Ironman. That's not what's required. <laughs> what's required is so much more. In that race, um, and I just, I just, I was clued out. I just didn't think a lot. You know, I, I just assumed everything would be the same as all the races that I had done. And it, it looked to the same, same transition zone. There's a swim. There's all the buoys out on the swim. Everything felt the same. The pre-race meeting, all the, all that stuff was exactly the same. So I was, had a good vibe going. I got to the swim and I even looked out at the swim and I thought, geez, the buoys, I thought it would look a lot longer. Look, look farther. I was like, oh, well, it looks the same as my regular race. This is going to be a piece of cake. So I got in the water to do the swim. Cannon, well, cannon, the horn went off and I headed out on the swim and I was feeling fantastic. Went out, came back, got on shore and I'm looking around at people. Why are these people running back in the water? And it's like, okay, dude, you've only done half. Oh, so we got to do it twice. Okay, that's why it looks so short. So they call it an Australian exit. You get out and then you turn around a cone and you run back in the water and you do it again. So that kind of threw me for a loop. I was still able to complete it, no problem. Then I got on the bike, which is usually my, my thing. And uh, I, 
it was fine. It was great. I started off, went off, took off way, way faster than I should. I took off at my half Ironman pace, which I've learned is too fast for this race. And again, it was two 90 kilometer loops. I got to about 80 kilometers, maybe a bit less into the first loop. Fine. And then you hit these uh, hills. They're called the three bears. It's just, you're going straight up a mountain. It's in, it's in the Adirondacks, right? It's in near Whiteface mountain. So, and that took everything out of me. I got to the, the, the start of the second loop more tired than I had ever been in any race ever. And I still had 90 kilometers to bike and 42 kilometers to run. There was no way, like this is not gonna happen. But I muddled my way around the bike. I took the pace way down, got to the top of the three bears, got into transition. And, and I had told, I had been in the last five or six kilometers on the bike, I was debating with myself, well, are you gonna try the run or should you just not bother? Cause if you don't bother, you can go to the hotel earlier and start drinking. <laughs> and if, but if you try and finish, it's going to be a long, hard day out, but ah, you know, maybe you should try to finish. And I had decided through all the debating, once I get back into transition, instead of going for the run, I'm done. I'm going to quit. So that was in my head. That made me feel a little bit better. At least I had made a decision. It was a decision that I wasn't comfortable with. It didn't make me feel like such a man, but I made the decision. And, but when I got into transition, I racked my bike. And as I put the seat over the bar to let it hang. I had this overwhelming urge to, uh, to do a number two, <laughs> to go poop. And so that, that, took over, that took over my brain and I ran past a woman whose turn it was to go in the porta potty and I just kind of yelled sorry behind me, but like in a second, you're gonna know why I just took your turn. And I soiled that place like nobody's business. And uh, but the release, like I felt so much lighter. My, my tri-suit fit better. Everything was great. So I figured, you know what? I'm going to do this. I got in the, so I'm going to do the run. So I got in the changing tent, changed into my running stuff. And they had a buffet of food out there. I ate a, all the food I could eat and said, okay, let's do this. Started the run again, way too fast, way faster than I should have. But I felt phenomenal, felt fantastic. And then, uh, then I saw this, they had these booths where they were handing out tubes of salt, base nutrition salt, which, you know, cause you lose tons of salt during the race. It's like, you need your electrolytes. And they're saying, do you want one of these tubes? Yeah, it's free. Of course, you know, like, like I say in the book, I'm a public school teacher. I think it's, it's in our contract. You have to take everything that's free in your life. You got to take it and try to take two. So I took it and she's asking me as I'm running along, do you know how it works? And I'm looking at her. First of all, why are you bothering me while I'm trying to run? I'm trying to get away from you. And secondly, like, what are you, am I an idiot? Like, you just, you put it in your mouth, right? So, hey, I got it. And I took off. I could flip the cap off and I downed it. It was like a, the size of a lipstick, like a chapstick. And I just hauled that whole thing and it was just pure salt. <laughs> and every part of my body just wrinkled up like I turned 85 years old overnight and it wrinkled and there was no moisture in any part of my body. I almost choked to death. And I was nowhere near the next aid station. So I had to run for about a mile before I could get water in me. And it all made it fine. And I remember thinking there was another guy who, uh, when we were running in the and I still didn't figure it out. Like I still thought, wow, that's stupid. Why do they hand out salt? 
And I got further along in the race and I got to another one of these stops and I told myself, I'm not taking any of that. But that guy that was running near me said, I'll take one. And she asked him, do you know how to use it? And he said, no, help me out. And I remember thinking so low of this guy, what kind of an idiot doesn't know how to eat? You know what I mean? Like you can't figure it out. What are you dumb? And I thought, man, you're never going to finish this race if you can't figure out salt. And I overheard her say, all you do is you lick your finger, dab it with the salt, and just tap that to your tongue. That's all you need for now. Definitely, you don't want to eat the whole thing. That would be stupid. <laughs> so I thought, okay, well, who's the idiot now, right? <laughs> and uh, I ended up feeling horribly in that race. Too. I, got, I kept stopping and starting and stopping and starting. I thought I was going to die. Again, that, every race, it seems like that's the worst I've ever felt. No, wait. This is the worst I've ever felt. What? No, wait a minute. This is the worst I've ever felt. But that, that was as bad as I've ever felt in a triathlon anyway. It was terrible. At what point did you think that this, you know, this was a bad idea for me to do? Well, I was thinking it was a bad idea on the bike still, but I got over that with a dump. And then, then in the run, I guess, uh, not far a good about 11, 12 kilometers in. So I still had 30 to go. And that's, that's a horrible realization when you, you know, like you're, you're, you're finished. Like I'm, I hadn't hit the wall per se, but I was, I was right up against it. And I think, Oh man, I still have done 11. I have to do three times more than that. And I, and like, how <laughs> I don't know how to do that. And the good lucky thing is, is that again, it was out and back and out and back, out and back. So you, you did this loop a couple of times and I'm thinking, okay, well, next time, at least they're giving me the opportunity to be near the finish line before the race is over. I could always quit and be close to the car <laughs> at least, but something would happen. It's kind of like, I don't know if you golf, I, I used to golf and I could be having a really terrible round of golf bogey here, a triple bogey there. Oh, I'm just, this is stupid. I hate this game. And then on the last hole, you birdie. So that's it. You're coming back. That kept happening to me in this race. I'd get near the thing. I'd see my girlfriend and then cheer me up. Oh, okay. And there's fans at the side of the road with signs and they're, everything's great. So I have boys, your spirits. Okay. I'll, I'll go around again. What a mistake. <laughs> but not a mistake at the end, you know, when you, when you've been that tired and you've hurt that much and you finish, it's so much better. You were having some interesting choice of words when you were seeing these fans, <laughs> uh, putting up these signs. And I, honestly, every time I was reading it, I was like just cracking up the whole time. So was it the fact that you just wanted to see the sign again that kept you going or like what pushed you to keep going during the, during that race? Well, that was part of it. Um, those signs, man, they have them at all, all like endurance events and they, you have, you see them on this week watching the tour de France, you see people holding up signs and, and they are clever. You know, I got to hand it to them. Some of them are super clever. Like at the Tour de France, I saw on the, the first stage, it said uh, 13 kilometers done, 3,800 and whatever left. You know, it's like, okay, that's clever. It's kind of funny when you're just starting. 
And like I said, you go around the run a few times and you see the same signs each time and the same fans and the same people offering you like a bacon and stuff like that. It's funny, you know, I get it. But when you're coming around the last lap, second half of a marathon, after you've biked 180 kilometers and swam four, it's no longer funny. Right? It's like, okay, dude, you got to put that sign away. And it's like, you know, I, my whole vocabulary got really distilled to a few choice words and they start with F. <laughs> it was, uh, I didn't, you know, I, didn't, I felt, it felt bad that that's all I could think of. But at the same time, it was like, oh man, I'm so tired. You are not funny anymore, dude. <laughs> Uh, so what pushed you to get into another full Ironman? Oh yeah, that was a, well, I had told myself after Lake Placid, um, no more. That's it. You're done. You're done for the full ones. Half Ironmans are plenty good. Um, you do well with them. You, you make it to the world championships every year. And I had resigned myself to that. And, uh, then one, one year I was, training and everything and my I was looking at pictures of, of from California and I had always wanted to go to California and my son said to me and he was he was young at the time six or seven eight maybe and dad well I'd love to go to California I thought oh geez not a bad idea I had been in a bit of a funk with my training and uh, I needed something to sort of lift my spirit so I said wow why don't I look for a race in California that would be great we could spend a couple weeks out there in Southern California so I went on the Ironman.com website, and lo and behold, there's a race, Santa Rosa, California, way up in wine country. That sounds perfect. We'll, we'll do the race, then we'll travel down to the south of the, the state and spend a couple of weeks. Perfect. Only problem is it was a full Ironman. So I was like, ah, geez. Oh, well, if I want to go to California, we're going to have to do another full Ironman. So that's why I signed up for it. And I remember thinking as I signed up for it, is this really the right move here? You know, should I be doing this? Which made me think of a story that, that I tell in the book where one night I used to live in Vancouver and I worked, I worked four to midnight as a, like a handyman in a shopping mall. And I was driving home, exhausted. I just want to get home from work. And I'm going along the street that has a, a, a street light every several hundred meters. And if you, if you make the first one on the green, you ride the green wave all the way home. But if you hit that first red, you're hitting every red. And there was this Jeep in front of me who, in Quebec, when there's a yellow light, that means speed up, right? You got to get through it. And apparently in BC, it's not quite the same thing. This guy, there was a yellow light and I'm thinking, okay, punch it, dude, let's go. And he, he stopped. I'm like, well, what are you doing? Like, you're stopping at a yellow light. So I had to stop behind this guy. Now I knew we're going to get caught at every red light. And I couldn't get around him. Huge Jeep jacked up to every light. Same thing. And he could see through the rear view mirror that I was just losing my mind, just screaming at the windshield. So he thought he'd be a bit of a jerk and he would slow down and make sure we stopped at every red light. So I finally got fed up with that. At the, one of the near the end of the red light section, I got out of my car, ripped open the door of his car, ready to beat the, pants off of this guy and as soon as i opened the door i regretted it because he was a giant of a muscle just a big big mean looking man he didn't look at me at all just kept his hand on the steering wheel and said 
you sure you want to do this? And that's what I was thinking when I did that final click signing up for the race in Santa Rosa was, you sure you want to do this? And I clicked it. And it ended up being just as hard as Lake Placid. <laughs> Actually, in most places in Ontario, yellow light means the exact same thing that it means in, uh, in Quebec, except for <laughs> Toronto. In Toronto, it means slow down up until, uh, up until the guy behind you gets the, 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 the red light, but you can go faster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you've had some really hairy injuries. Which one, which one was the one that made you feel like quitting? Uh, was that, was that, um, the hamstring, which, which, uh, which ended up not being a hamstring it was just an adductor muscle, but that's the one that, that because it was the first industry industry injury that I'd ever had that, that wouldn't go away. You know, it, it just, it just persisted. And I, I tried what I thought was everything. I tried, like I'd never taken a rest before. I could never, before that, I rest days, they just didn't exist. And I know that that's stupid. You should take rest days. It's probably part of why I got injured. But, uh, but this one, I couldn't fight my way through it. And, and it, it, it actually brought me down, like I, I, depressed, like clinic, well, clinically, very depressed, like to the point where I didn't want to get up in the morning. I didn't want to go anywhere. But I would keep trying and trying. It just, it wouldn't go away. And I thought, oh, maybe I'm too old. Maybe I don't, I don't know how to do it. And I thought it wasn't so much that I wanted to quit the sport. It was that I actually started to think that I was never going to be able to do the sport. I still wanted to, but my body wouldn't let me. And it was just, it was so awful. And I mean, the, the dumb thing about it is, is that, you know, it was an injury. It happens. And because I had never had something that stopped me, no matter how much it hurt, I didn't, I didn't know how to deal mentally, uh, emotionally with not like something else stopping you from doing what you love to do. So I didn't, I, I didn't know how to deal with it. And I didn't listen to anybody's advice on it because I've always done things by myself. And I said, I don't, I don't need your help. But I can remember clearly my girlfriend telling me week after week, go see the, go see a massage therapist. Cause I have one of my friends is a massage therapist. He's a phenomenal one. And I said, you know, you know, thanks, but I don't, I don't really need anybody's help. I'm going to make it through this on my own. And that's when I went to Syracuse, didn't finish the race. And when I got home from that race, my girlfriend said for one final time, why don't you go see your buddy? Go get, you've tried everything else. Why don't you try that? So I went and I got a massage. It was cleared up in, in one session. And that, that was phenomenal. But I think it's not so much, the massage definitely helped. He has magic hands. But I think what got me over the injury more than the massage itself was the massage was just a symbol. It was, I finally gave in and accepted help. And that acceptance has changed everything. I think, I think, yeah, he maneuvered my muscle and he cleared the scar tissue and that made me able to move. But just knowing that I was able to say, get over a hurdle and the hurdle wasn't the injury. It was getting help to get through the injury. And, and since I could use help to get me through that now I could, and I have done since then I've, I've, I've sought help with training, like 
what kind of interval should I do? Should I periodize my training this way? Just stuff like that. Instead of trying to handle it all myself, I seek help from others and it's made me such a better athlete and a better person. So the main, the main takeaway for you were getting out of that because it left you in a, it left you in a, in a really depressed state from what you were saying in your book. And I can resonate with something like that. Um, so just talking about it and just finding help is what helped you get out of the depressed state. Absolutely. Yeah. And the fact that I thought it was the injury that was making me depressed and it was, I mean, it wasn't helping, but it was the fact that I, that I, I couldn't get over it on my own. I wasn't, I started to think that I've always gotten over things myself. So if I can't get over this, uh, what am I? Like I can't, I'm, I'm not good enough. A, I'm not good enough to race and B, I'm not good enough to fix this. And I had always thought that asking for help is weak. And then I got help and I realized, okay, well, no, that's, that's not what it is. It, it helps. That's why they call it help <laughs> because it makes you better. It gets you over things that hurt. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you also talked about the worst day in your life during your, during the fifth grade. <laughs> can you talk about why that was your worst day? Yeah, I can. Um, it, it, it the worst day I started off by um, talking about that was the day that I had to go. Uh, I went to the eye doctor. Um, and when you're, when you're young, I guess I was in grade five or six and uh, doctor told me I needed glasses, which basically was like a nightmare for a, for a kid who's very athletic and how am I going to get more my hockey helmet, my football helmet? What am I going to do? And back then it was just because my eyes had been crossed when I was a kid. So they were, they were, straightening them out which i had no problem with before like, i didn't mind but i guess i guess they don't want you walking through life cross-eyed um so i got these glasses and they were horrible i mean they were the ugliest glasses that you could think of times 10 um and i, I remember at going to the the optician the place where you buy the glasses with my parents just just despondent i was so sad it was like i can't believe you're making me do this this is this is garbage and the guy that was trying the glasses on my face, like I, I was young and, and I realized then like there are people that you just want to punch right in the face. And he was one of those guys because he just, he kept putting a set of glasses on my face and saying, oh, these ones, these ones are you. Oh, they look great. These ones are you. And I said, no, they're not. I don't like these ones. So he'd put them down and take the exact same pair, but in a different color on my face, all oh, the red ones, these are you. And it's like, no, they're exactly the same as the other ones. They're just a different color. I want to punch you in the face. So eventually I just gave up and my dad picked out a pair of the brown, thick Coke bottle, ugly looking things with a big sports strap on the back so that I could play sports with my glasses on. Yay. And uh, so that led up to the worst day of my life. I, I would Every day I would go to school and get teased and people would call me four eyes and point there, all these, all these names. And there was one kid in town that would, Joel Rutenberg, who was, he was the town bully. He had the worst name. He, cause my glasses would tint when I would go outside. So they'd go all dark, which was like, that, that's cool now, the transitions ones or whatever they're called, but it wasn't so cool back then. 
And uh, so he would call me Elton Baby, like Elton John, because that's how big the glasses were on my face. Those, you know, those follow the yellow brick road days. And uh, geez, I looked like an idiot. Anyway, so we were playing pickup baseball in the summertime, having a great old time playing Pop 500. And I was up at bat and I was getting ready to hit the ball. And way in the distance, I heard this voice from the distance. Hey, Elton, baby. And it was Joel Rutenberg. The long and the short of it is he, uh, we ended up in a bit of a tussle, which wasn't much of a tussle. He went to grab a baseball bat that I had in my hand. He missed and he fell down. And so everybody was laughing and he felt like all bullies do when when they're insulted, they, they kind of lose their mind and they have to take it out on someone else. So he took it out on me. All he did was he laid me down on the ground, put his knee in my chest, and he tapped on my forehead, right in the center of my forehead with his index finger, just like, just like tapping on a table. And at first I thought, oh, that's it? That's all you're going to do? Like I thought you were going to punch me right in the face, which I kind of wanted because then he'd break my glasses and I wouldn't have to wear them anymore and it'd be fantastic, right? Problem solved. But no, he didn't stop with one tap. He kept doing it for a couple of hours, once every second, boom, 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 boom. Until eventually the throbbing pain in my head was just way, way more than I could handle. I didn't even, I wanted to cry, but I knew that if I made noise crying, it would hurt even more. So I just sat there and took it for two hours. It was just brutal and he wouldn't stop. And then finally, like most bullies, he just got sick of it, kind of like a cat with a, with a dead mouse. He said, okay, I'm done with this. I don't even want to eat it. He got up and he left. And he didn't even have the common courtesy to break my glasses or anything like that. You know, he just, he got up and left. And that was that. But man, I had that headache for so long. It lasted for a week. It was brutal. What happened after with that, with that bully? Was there any like follow-up? Like, did you talk to your parents about it? No, it's kind of like with the bike ride that where we fell off our bikes when we were kids. When I was a kid, you, you, you kind of just, you let it go. Cause I figured if I, if I tell my parents, first of all, they probably wouldn't do anything. They probably just say, suck it up. You know, that, that happens. Boys will be boys kind of thing. But there was that which sucked or they would go the other way and phone his parents. And then what's that going to do? It's just going to make it worse. I'm just going to get a bigger beating the first opportunity. So I figured, look, I'll just, I'll let it go. And he, he stayed, he stayed a bully <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> but I think he had a little more, he never bothered me after that. So I guess he had, he had finished with me and moved on to somebody else. Or maybe I'd like to think that it's because he thought I was tough enough to handle it, which I wasn't. I just didn't want it to hurt more. That's why I didn't cry. Mm-hmm. It wasn't because I didn't want to cry. <laughs> no, because it's interesting because there's a lot of, <clears throat> there's a lot of people like even older older people like 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 us that they're still bullies like the bully will always be a bully if some unless somebody walks up and punches them in the nose and breaks their nose and they maybe think about it because i remember this one amazing story from uh, george st pierre yeah where he was bullied as a kid right and then he met the bully after George St. Pierre became George St. Pierre. <laughs> and he was sitting, the bully was actually homeless sitting on a street on, I think it was René Levesque. He was just, like, George St. Pierre's driving in his like $100,000 car. And he sees this bully and he, he literally stops the car, walks out, walks out, sits down beside him and looks at him and goes, do you remember me? 
He goes, yeah. He goes, do you remember what you did to me? He goes, yeah. He goes, well, you made me for like basically what, what I am. Wow. So do you think that instance of you being bullied as a kid pushed you to push yourself now in like your profession and in your try in your, in your, like, uh, in your sports, in your, in your, I'd say your professional sports career. Yeah, probably. I've never really thought of it that way. Um, but yeah, probably because it showed me a couple of things. Number one, it showed me that I could, I can, though it hurts, I can handle it. I, I handled it that time anyway, the pain. And because it lasted so long, I'm able to, um, go through pain for a long period of time, which is what all endurance sports are about. Um, I guess so. Um, and, and I don't know. Um, I don't know where he is today. I'd like to have that GSP moment to go see him and say, you know, dude, you remember me? Look, and you know, but I'm not GSP. I don't have a hundred thousand. I have a Kia. Right? There's no, there's no hundred thousand dollars. He'd probably look at me and bully me because he got, you drive that piece of garbage. <laughs> but, but probably, you know, like it, it, those, those things like that do make you a stronger person. Um, whether you know it or not. And I tell that kind of thing to my students all the time when, when they feel down about something, say, look, this is not the end of it. Eh? Like this is high school. This is, this is one day in high school. You're going to leave this place and you're not even going to think about it anymore. So don't, don't worry about it. This is, you're going to get over this little small incident because that's ultimately, that's what it was. It was, it was a s- small piece of time. I'm 52 years old now. That was two hours. Yeah, exactly. So we're going to be closing up the, the conversation here. And I always ask these uh, seven questions to all my guests that come just to get their perspective on themselves and who they are and what they think about stuff. So with the increase in people suffering from depression from the lockdown, what would be the one thing that you could tell them to keep their hopes up? Well, basically what I just said now is that this lockdown, um, it, it wasn't your fault, right? It's, it's not something that you did. So you can take comfort from that. Um, not, not, nothing you could have done would have changed the lockdown happening or would have changed this virus coming in and happening. So there's that. And secondly, um, we can learn from this lockdown. That's a, that's a bonus. It's terrible that all of this happened, but if there's one bright light to come from it all, it's that we've been forced to change the way we do things. We might, hopefully we won't have to stay in this state forever, but even if we do have to, we know we can handle it. And secondly, it has forced us to look at the world differently, which you should always do anyway right? You should always look at things from a different side. When you disagree with someone, the first thing you should do before you open your mouth is, okay, let's try and look at it from that side. So it's something new. You need to come up with a solution that wasn't there before. So it's helping us grow as a society. That's amazing. And I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. Um, Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Well, I'll probably still be working as a phys ed teacher, but I would like, I would love to be able to, to write a lot more. Um, it would be wonderful if I could write full time because I've been, I've been at the same job for 21 years now. And though I still love it, 
the burnout is coming. You know, um, you can feel it. You, most people before the age of 30 have changed their job like a number of times. I've been at the same job, same building, same office, same classroom, same gym for 21 years. And it's, again, it's, it's fine. It's just, I have less patience each year, you know, the summer, my favorite part of teaching July and August, they're, they're not cutting it anymore. I would really like to be, so I would like to be able to make my living through writing. Will that happen? I, I, I doubt it, but you know, at least I've written something and I'm working on another thing now. So we'll see. That's awesome. Uh, what about Kona? Do you see yourself qualifying for Kona? Well, that's the plan. Um, I'm, I've already registered for a race in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Um, that will happen. Well, hopefully will happen in June and that's a full Ironman. And, uh, I've, I've started my training already in hopes of qualifying for Kona there. And if all goes well, hopefully it'll happen. <laughs> I look forward to reading it in your next book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you could pick up the phone right now and call yourself at 20 years old, what would you tell yourself? Oh, I tell myself to get into triathlon <laughs> and, and there are bike races out there. You idiot. You don't need to swim. <laughs> uh, uh, lots of things. I mean, the number one thing would, would be because I hadn't at 20, uh, that would mean I was just starting university. I had zero confidence in my academic life and no, the only place I had confidence at 20 was when I was playing sports. I was on the, the college hockey team. I played junior hockey, went pretty far in other sports while I was on the playing field, tons of confidence. As soon as I left that field in every other aspect of my life, zero confidence. Speaking in front of people, I would drop courses in university because I'd read the syllabus. Oh, we have to give a presentation. Well, that's that. I'm not doing that. Couldn't do it. And now I speak in front of people every single day of my life. That is my job. Um, I would tell myself, look, the way you, uh, treat a game, a sport, a practice, that's how you have to treat the rest of your life. There's no reason to think that you're not good enough to do this stuff. And even if you do say something stupid, what's the worst that could happen? So you, you look dumb for a bit. Usually that's fun, funny. Well, I do it now. I make fun of myself all the time and it gets a laugh. Hey, it's good. <laughs> it's positive attention. So that's what I tell them. Look, don't worry about it. You, you got this. Awesome. Uh, looking back, would you change anything? No, I would change nothing because if I changed something, I wouldn't be what I am today. Not that, not that I'm, you know, I'm not a millionaire or anything, but, but I love where I am today. I love the, I probably wouldn't have written this book, which was wonderful for me. I had enjoyed every, it was very, very difficult to do. Uh, it took a ton of time, but I wouldn't have done it. It wouldn't have happened if, if something changed. I wouldn't have met my girlfriend. I wouldn't have the son that I have. I wouldn't change anything. Yeah, I made mistakes and uh, I would not want to make those mistakes again, but without having made them, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be where I am today. That's amazing. And uh, I'm glad that you actually wrote the book because it, I had a great time reading it. I, I couldn't stop laughing in some points. I mean, I think I got some weird looks from my neighbors. I was laughing so hard. Like some points I'm like, Oh my God, this is, this is hilarious, but a uh, very inspiring book though. 
what keeps you up at night? Fear. Um, and just fear in general, fear of lots of different things. Like most nights I don't sleep well. I still don't sleep well. And I'm always thinking of during the school year, even though I've been doing it for 21 years, uh, though I'm a lot more confident now than I ever was before, there's always that little, you know, like, cause as a teacher, you're, you're on every day. It's like, it's like a comedian. It's like a performer every single day. And it's like, you're on the tonight show and tonight's the night. Every morning I have that today's the day you can't, you can't bomb in front of these kids and you always have to be on. And, and that's a lot of pressure. And that makes some nights it's like, I can't, I, I can't sleep. That keeps me up thinking about that. Um, sometimes if, if I am injured, cause I get injured all the time, I, you start to think, well, geez, will, will I get over this injury? Will it get over as quickly as I need it to get over? Because I have a race in a couple of months, things like that. Then there's things like now that I'm a father, uh, everything that I've ever done wrong, I don't want my son to do that or everything bad that's ever happened to me. I hope he doesn't have to go through that. And I hope he does well. And he has a competition tomorrow. I hope he doesn't feel before the competition the way I feel before the competition, because it's, it's hard, like it's emotionally hard. And I watch him and I think, Oh boy. So it's, it's scary. So it's fear, basically fear of many things. Mm -hmm. And where can people find more about you? Well, I have a blog now, um, uh, www.thehacktriathlonblog.ca. That's out there. And uh, well, on Amazon, you can order my book. You find a lot about me in that book, that's for sure. Um, you can get a digital copy at Indigo Chapters. And if you're in the States, you can also get it at Barnes & Noble. And uh, we will be posting shortcuts and links to Brock Gibbs' uh, book, my coworkers think I'm a pro uh, with the show notes with uh, underneath uh, wherever this is going to be. Uh, if it's going to uh, wherever you're listening to it, or if you're watching it on YouTube, uh, we're going to post the links to, uh, to his book. Um, any final thoughts? No, I'm just really happy that uh, to have this opportunity. I love, I love hearing, like you said, right at the onset, when you, when I, you talked about the, the bike ride that you, although your cousins went on, and that makes me feel good knowing that this book will talk to people that, that aren't triathletes. It's fantastic. That's awesome. Yeah. Like I said, like, it, like it brought back so many memories, like, Oh, we're going to race over here. What's the prize? No prize. We're going to just race around the block. What's the prize? No prize. Bragging rights. Exactly. Yeah. That's the way it was done. Yeah. Uh, Brock, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I appreciate you for you putting yourself out there and putting yourself into a book to share with the world, like what a triathlete, um, really goes through. Um, I've never raced in a triathlon before. I've always wanted to, and I have a very small window into your world because of your book. My coworkers think I'm a pro and I appreciate you for that. Oh, thanks a lot. It was a pleasure to be on the show. It's fantastic. Uh, going through hard times is just a test. What you need to know is that when you get out of whatever you're going through, you will be stronger than ever before, and you don't need to go through it alone. Always know that you are not alone.
Stay tuned for more real people with amazing stories just like yours. Until then, to everyone out there listening, I wish you a good morning, good afternoon, or a good night wherever you may be in this crazy world.